you've been long enough at this mountain. The, the mountain is where we want to be. This is where we heard from God. This is a holy place. It's, it's where the, you know, we, we, we like the mountain. We don't like the valley. We like the mountaintop experience. And so God says, you've been here long enough. Now it's time to go venture out where you're supposed to be. You can't just stay here. All right, good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you're at, whatever time it is. Uh, this is the Men of True Worth podcast. I'm really excited to host this, and this will be our first ever Men of True Worth podcast. And who better to interview for that podcast than a true man of true worth right here, <laughs> Pastor Matt McEwen. He's my senior pastor, and I'm just really excited to get in some depth and some conversation here. So we are not going to take too much time with this. Let's get started right in. Okay. So thank you for having me. Yes. Welcome, Pastor Matt McEwen. Thank you. So I really want to start off and we'll let the people learn a little bit about who Pastor Matt McEwen is. Okay. Um, so go ahead and tell us a little bit about your journey. How long have you been in ministry? Um, were you raised in it or how did you come to the Lord and all this type of story that everybody likes to hear the good stuff? Okay, so I was born into a ministry family. My great uncle, my mom's dad's brother, was a church planter. And so he went all over the place planting churches. In fact, at one point, there were five churches that I think he planted in Florida alone. And so one of them being our church. So when my parents got married, uh, my father, there was, there was no one in his family that was in like professional ministry, pulpit ministry. But on my mom's side of the family, my, my mom's dad was a worship leader and he has passed away in the last few years. But his wife, my grandmother played the piano back in church where the praise team consisted of a song leader and a piano player. And so that's what they did. They teamed up. And then my grandpa's brother uh, and his wife, they, um, they led the church. And so uh, my dad is the first person in his family to be in ministry. But my mom's dad and uncle, they founded our church. And my mom's, on my mom's mom's side, her grandfather was uh, a minister as well. He was a pastor as well. So uh, our, our family, I kind of feel like sometimes God calls a family into ministry. So, um, yeah, my, uh, my grandpa, my dad's dad was a, a milkman. And uh, so he, he wasn't in, uh, in ministry. Um, but my dad started pastoring when he was 19 and then went to uh, seminary and pastored several churches. I was born here in Daytona Beach, Florida. But uh, while my parents went to seminary, we lived in Indiana for a little bit. Moved back in the late 80s. Uh, I was hired as the church's full-time youth pastor in 1998, and so I did that for many years. And then also was the worship leader from the church for the church for many years. And then just in the last three years, I have assumed the role of, of senior pastor at the church. I was the, the associate pastor for, wow, probably 15 years, something like that. So, yeah, my, my dad has been in ministry for a long time. I have a brother. I have two brothers, but one brother is a, uh, a senior pastor at a church. 
my other brother has a master in biblical masters in biblical archaeology and is a, a teacher at our Christian school. Um, so all of us are involved in some kind of ministry at some point. And I married a girl whose dad was a pastor as well. So <laughs> lots of ministry. Uh, so would you say you would say you're a man of many hats, I suppose. I have lots of hats. Yeah. I, I, I've always been at this church. It's the only church I've ever served at. And we're kind of a smaller church. And um, it's always been kind of our style to be what we call bivocational pastors. So we, we are pastors, but we also do other things on the side to supplement our income. So one of the things I do is I run a recording studio. I've done that professionally for 20 years. Um, I have a Messianic Jewish teaching ministry that's under the umbrella of an Israeli rabbi who has come to faith. And he and I travel the world, um, share the gospel with people and connecting Christians with the Jewish roots of their faith and um, sharing the gospel with Jewish people. So uh, that's another part of my work that I do. And then I'm also a a gigging musician. I'm a professional musician that uh, plays at events and restaurants and things to make some extra money. And so, yeah, I do a lot of different a lot of different and varied things. So I would say this is just really impressive that you're able to to keep all of that under wraps and well, keep all of that in your how head. How do you know that I do? <laughs> <laughs> well, what I love is that you you clearly have a strong family tie in with yes. your, with all of your background in ministry and how you guys all work together. So I'm. Um, how does that play into as far as you guys all supporting each other or the, um, the way that you guys work together as a team in the church, in the ministry? It's an interesting word that you use, team. That's, that's what we've always said. We've always said that we're like a ministry team. You know, um, The church that my brother pastors um, is uh, of our same denomination. We're the only two churches of the United Brethren in Christ, which is the denomination that we're part of. We're the only two churches in Florida. Um, our church was the first church that was founded of our denomination in the South. Um, most of our churches are in Indiana, Ohio, Michigan, Pennsylvania, that, that area, the sort of Midwest and mid Atlantic area. Um, our church wasn't, uh, the denomination was founded in the 1760s in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, but it wasn't until the 1960s that we had a church down here because we were staunch abolitionists. Uh, before it was fashionable, and we had pastors try to start churches down here, but just because of of racist attitudes, because we um, didn't believe in owning other human beings, um, there were people in the South that didn't like those ideas, and so it took a couple hundred years to get down here. So when you talk about being a team, some of that just has to do with there's not another United Brethren church around. And so we kind of have to, you know, stick together. But not only that, since there's not other United Brethren churches around, we've had to be very ecumenical and work with churches across denominational lines and non-denominational churches. And um, so we have a great relationship with with other local pastors and, and, and churches in our area. This is a this is a pretty interesting story. Um, hmm. I'm glad you're sharing this with us. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> this is really cool. Now, as, as a senior pastor and as a speaker and, and a teacher, what has been for you the most difficult theological question to explain to uh, your congregation or hmm. any people in particular? 
I would say probably in the modern world, um, probably the most difficult theological questions that we get are with regard to identity, special, especially sexual identity, uh, the transgender question, LGBTQ issues. Th- these are things that are uh, are difficult to answer because we have um, you know a book that we follow that doesn't necessarily agree with with what modern culture says on certain issues. Um, and so usually it's the things that have to do with, with morality and things like that, that are the difficult questions. Those are at least the difficult questions for, for me, in my opinion, because they, they deal with usually when someone is asking questions about identity, either they are dealing with issues of identity or they have a loved one that's dealing with issues of identity. So that, that makes it very personal and, and makes it very, um, it's a, it's a matter of the heart. It, it makes it very touchy. Um, some of these things, I don't find theological questions about doctrine or theology practice, whatever. I don't find those difficult. Um, I enjoy studying things from a couple different perspectives, from a few different ways of looking at things, um, just so that I can know how someone who might disagree with me, how they feel about a certain issue. So theological questions to me are not the difficult ones. It's usually things to do with um, friends and loved ones that may be living in a particular way that may be contrary to scripture. Um, Or, you know, like I say, question of, of morality, identity, morality, things like that. Those are the, those are the hard ones. Well, when you when you're speaking and when you're talking about um, maybe not so much theological questions, but let's shift a little bit. And when we look at the church as a whole, mm-hmm. um, and maybe we we talk about um, Western church as a whole, uh, where has the church in general missed the mark? Do you feel? Um, the the two things I love to harp on my little pet soapboxes are uh, on two different things. Number one, I think the church is really good at making converts and not very good at making disciples. That's my biggie. I love to talk about that. And then um, I think the other thing that i like to talk about is the Christian phrase, personal Lord and Savior. Because when you read the Bible, and not just in the Old Testament, when we get like into the book of Romans or whatever, when you have a verse like, uh, all Israel will be saved— what does that mean? Because what it seems to be talking about is a is a corporate salvation, a corporate redemption. And we have made in the West Christianity very individualistic, especially in the United States. And I think it's because we are founded on the idea of individual liberty, personal freedom, personal responsibility. And so making Jesus your personal Lord and Savior, it, it's a buzz phrase. It's almost like we're, we're so focused on our personal relationship with God. We're not looking at um, us as a people, you know, in, in verses like in the Old Testament and in First Chronicles. If my people who are called by my name, there's, there's a corporate thing about this. There's, a, there's an idea of uh, in Israel about there being a, a corporate redemption. And then if we believe what the New Testament says, that we're grafted into that commonwealth of Israel, what does that mean? What does it mean for a Christian to not only think about individual redemption, but to think about a corporate redemption? It's not something that we think about very much or, or talk about. 
because we're so concerned with the, the individual. But in other cultures and other countries, like for instance in Asia, where we see families that live together, multi-generational families, grandma doesn't live in a nursing home in, in most of Asia or, or in the Middle East. You know, grandma and grandpa, great grandma, great grandpa, everybody lives in the house together. And so there's, there's this idea of we, that there's a corporate thing about I'm the head of household and I need to make sure that as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That seems to be more emphasized in other countries than in ours or in other places rather than in the West. In the West, it's almost like as for me and me, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm worried about, about my salvation. Um, we're not, we're not as concerned with looking at our family or our city or our nation as we would be in other countries. What, what would be the main, um, benefit to being more corporate? I think accountability and not just accountability. I think when we say accountability here in the States, we we're talking about I need someone to keep me accountable. Be my brother. Question me about my spiritual life. We're not thinking about accountability like when Lot was kidnapped and taken away, Abraham got hundreds of men together and said, we're going after him. You know, at, at personal risk, we are going after him. We're not leaving him behind. So I think when we're more corporate-minded, and I'm not saying that we don't need to have that individual relationship with God. Don't don't misunderstand what I'm saying. We need that. I think we're doing that very well in the church today, the individual thing. I don't think we're doing the thing of, I see this guy struggling and I need to get down in the dirt with him and snatch him from the fire, as it says in the New Testament, to, to get him out of whatever he's in, rather than, oh, I haven't seen you in church in a little while and, well, that's his life and he's going to live it and, uh, you know, write him off. <laughs> That's so cool that something you mentioned there, I've never thought about it in that way, but the way you're saying, like, they gathered up the guys to go to go get them back. Yeah. Um, that's an interesting, interesting thing when we're, because we're actually in a, in a spiritual war. Yes. And to be doing things corporately, it's like we're, we've got an army with us. Right. Um, and of course we have the spiritual army, but we're at, when we're all working together to the same goal, it's, I think I find that fascinating to think about. Well, this that. has to resonate with you. You're a marine. You don't leave anybody <laughs> behind. You know what I mean? That there's a there's something about someone who served in in a military that has a different mindset of like this is my squad, this is my platoon, this is my group, this is my battalion, this is my whatever. These are my brothers. And for some reason, we're very good in the military about that, about a brotherhood, and about not leaving someone behind. Not so good in church about that. Well, um, I'm glad you brought up the military aspect because that actually goes along with one of the other things you said there. Because whenever I was in the Marines, whenever I I joined the Marines, I was in boot camp. I went through uh, through the crucible. At the end of the crucible, there's uh, and you know it's like a grueling training over mm. three days, and then at the end there's a hike. It's we and on the west coast where we make real Marines, um, <laughs> they, we, we climb this hill called the Reaper. Hmm. And so at the top of the Reaper, and that's where they do a little ceremony and you get your Eagle Globe and anchor there. And technically that's when you become a Marine. And so, um, 
when you become a Marine, I, I wrote about this in the book, is like, when you become a, a Marine, wouldn't that be silly if I just say, okay, well, I'm just going to stay here. Right. And I'm not going to move along. I'm not going to do anything else. I'm just going to stay here. That's not really what being a Marine is. It's right. not something that you just earn and you are. It's, it's, a, it's a new lifestyle and it would be silly to become a Marine and not then go do Marine things. Hmm. And so the, what I wanted to tie that into was when you talked about converts versus disciples and, and kind of like, what does that mean to you as far as like converts versus disciples? Because I, uh, and I feel like you and I have a lot of, uh, uh, we, we have a lot of parallels in our thought process on this because mm. You're even doing a series at the church in between the lines, right? Um, so it's like there's a there's a need to continue on. It's not just get saved and we're good, right? Or, is that kind of what you're talking about, or, or where are you going with that? Yeah, and that that's what between the lines is all about. Is that salvation is not the finish line, and we have become in modern Christianity and the modern church, we've become so salvation centric. Salvation is just the beginning. Salvation is the starting line of the race. Now, where do you go? The finish line is not salvation. The finish line is when you die. <laughs> so the, the, to put it in a nice way, my sermon series this year has been the starting line is salvation, the finish line is heaven. And what we do in between is important. And it really resonates with me when you talk about, you know, you could just stay there as Marines, but you're not you wouldn't be doing anything. God brings the Israelites to Mount Sinai and it takes them a while to get there. It takes them 50 days to get there. And out of Egypt came um, what is known in Hebrew as, as the Erev Rav, the mixed multitude that came out. After Mount Sinai, when God descends on that mountain and fire and smoke and thunder and lightning, and he gives these commandments. He speaks them to the people with his own voice. And it scares them so much. They say, Moses, please don't let the Lord speak to us anymore. You talk to him and you tell us what he says. Because if we hear his voice, we'll die. So after that moment, that mixed multitude, you never hear from him again. And it's because they are now part of Israel. They're now part of this new nation that has formed. And there's a place in the Bible in in those first five books, Genesis through Deuteronomy, that's very special to me, that God says, you've been long enough at this mountain. The, the mountain is where we want to be. This is where we heard from God. This is a holy place. It's, it's where the, you know, we, we, we like the mountain. We don't like the valley. We like the mountaintop experience. And so God says, you've been here long enough. Now it's time to go venture out where you're supposed to be. You can't just stay here. You know, they become a people. You became Marines on the top of that hill. You can't stay there. You've got to go. This really resonates with me um, because I've, I've had this, this, uh, this thought in my head a lot when it comes to, I've thought about this topic a lot. So it's really interesting that it came up this way. And I feel like people when they get saved, they, they have a big, they have a great feeling, you know, they have, they feel right. great. They feel the presence of the Holy Spirit. They feel like, you know, this is amazing, but is there like a danger to getting kind of like addicted to that feeling 
and then always trying to search for that feeling again. But it's like that was an, I don't know, it, was it just an experience more than and like a, than a feeling? But it's like we're trying to get it back, and then we start to think like, oh, was it all fake or something like that? This is a really good question, and this is something that I haven't heard a lot of pastors talk about. But this is a huge issue. Because you get to the point where you're kind of chasing that feeling. And you you mentioned the word addicted. I think that's the perfect word. Because you get this spiritual high, this mountaintop experience. And for the rest of your spiritual life, if you're not careful, you're chasing that feeling. And so I just don't feel what I used to feel. I don't know that I can chapter and verse back up a theory that I have. It's something that I've been thinking about for a long time. But to me, it seems, I'm not saying this is the way that it is because I I can't prove this, but it seems like when you first come to the Lord, it's almost like he gives you, for lack of a better term, like a spiritual inoculation against things that are in the outside world that could trip you up. It's like you have this, this uh, this rush of it, it's a great feeling. It's like you said, it's like a spiritual high. It's like, oh, me and the Lord, we can do anything. And I see that as almost like a honeymoon phase in your relationship with the Lord. Just like you have a honeymoon phase with your spouse. It's it's new. And, and in that newness and in that beginning, it's like we could take over the world, but it's almost like God is giving you like a, like a little push. It's like you're learning how to ride a bike and a parent is behind you giving you that little push so that you can do it. But then after a while, it's like, yeah, and God is always with you, but I don't, I don't know that you ever, I've never met someone that has not at one point in their life said, I just wish I could feel that thing, you know, that when I was first coming to the Lord or whatever. But I really think that's, and I'd love to read a book or write a book on, <laughs> on that that idea of, I think God gives you a little extra juice at the beginning <laughs> to get you, you know, on that downhill. But then when you have to, when the trials of life come and you got to keep pedaling, you know, that. That, that's a thing that I, I, I'm a big believer in is I, I think there's something to the idea that we've got to keep pedaling. I'm not saying we uh, earn our salvation or anything like that. That's not what I'm saying. But I kind of feel like in our spiritual lives, we're either pedaling uphill or if we stop pedaling, we roll downhill. I don't think there's any coasting with the mm-hmm. Lord. I think we have to be constantly striving, like Paul says, constantly moving ahead. And uh, if we don't, I think that's where the enemy trips us up. We think we can coast, and I think we're just coasting downhill. <laughs> so it with on this topic though, um, because I don't, we don't want to just talk about things that's like problems. Right. We also want to say, what do you think is a way? What can the church do differently? Hmm. Or. Or what changes can be made to kind of um, fix the problem or, or work on discipleship more? Right. That, I think what the church can do, and who am I? You know, I'm just a pastor. But 
I think what the church can do, what the Western church can do, and especially what the American church can do, because I see the church in other parts of the world that are getting this really right. So I know it can be done because it was done in Acts chapter 2. I think there's something about relationships rather than programs. It's really easy for us in church leadership to try to come up with a great program, a great Bible study, a great vacation Bible school, a great youth program, you know, a, a thing to like a solution, like some sort of mechanism that we can put in place and magically we're looking at the spiritual version, I think, of a get-rich-quick scheme or a diet pill. Mm-hmm. You know, it's something that you can lose weight fast so you don't have to do any work. I think it's easier to put together a program than to really get in the sometimes mud and mire of personal relationships, of really getting... And that's something that I've really appreciated about about you and your wife, Claire, is that you you do Acts chapter 2. You you have people into your home. That's a big thing. Just for somebody to have someone over to invade their personal space anymore, that's a big deal. And not only to, to just have people in your home, but even people that may or may not have a current relationship with God. What a beautiful thing that to me that is so much more effective having someone in your home eating with someone there is something disarming about breaking bread with someone having a meal with someone all of a sudden the mask goes away the the putting the best foot forward goes away we're eating together we're, we're now disarmed and we're vulnerable there's something about that. And what we see in Scripture, that's what they're doing. They're in people's houses. They're, they're doing life together. It's not about a program. It's about relationships. And I think it's got to be done on a smaller scale. It can't just be done as a church. It's got to be done as individual families that are strengthening one another, that are getting together, that are, that are going through life together in the good times and the bad times. Well... This, this topic is so, so interesting. So whenever we're talking about uh, discipleship as a program, um, but I love what you're talking about because I, I do believe in that, you know, getting together, having people over, um, doing life together, actually doing life together rather than just like we get together once in a, in a week and then right. we never see each other. But the, when, um, when we talk about discipleship, Hmm. specifically um i've i've been to many different churches and sometimes i've personally felt like there's been a a uh, an attempt to kind of hijack the discipleship definition and turn it into like we're going to do a discipleship class right or something like that and you know i i, I kind of it, it um, I, I don't find myself to be a critical person in these times, but sometimes it kind of feels a little like, well, that's not really what it's about. Hmm. And I'm, tr- but I'm kind of curious about the programs versus actually doing it, because right. doing it doesn't isn't really like a, like saying that I'm doing it. It's just doing it. Right. So I'm kind of curious about when it comes to the programs that that a lot of um, that a lot of times they're trying to run. 
do you find it to be more of a a um, catchphrase type of thing that we're doing discipleship stuff here or is it really like a do you find it to be more really like a, a genuine attempt to incorporate discipleship in the body of Christ I I want to give people the benefit of the doubt I I, I think there's a genuine attempt I just think we've got it all wrong and <laughs> I, and part of that has to do with again uh, a Western mindset versus um, well let, let's put it like this a a Greek mindset versus a Hebrew mindset. Greek mindset would be all about ideas, philosophy. It's a very heady thing, whereas a Hebrew mindset is very hands-on. So discipleship in the Bible, we have to understand that the entire concept, the entire context of the Bible is Jewish, even the New Testament. And if that's your context, what does discipleship look like in a Jewish setting? versus, um, let's say, uh, somebody like Plato or Socrates or someone has a, uh, a disciple that learns to think like them. That's more a Greek, that's more of a Western thing. So if we were to look at this in a more Hebrew way or a more Jewish way, the idea of a disciple was being an apprentice. It's not learning how to think differently. It's learning how to do everything that your teacher did. The idea of a disciple, first of all, in, in a Jewish context, there's no such thing as a disciple without a rabbi. There has to be a rabbi. So that rabbi-disciple relationship, that teacher-disciple relationship is, I need to do everything exactly the way my teacher does it. It's much more like apprenticing for like a master craftsman. If you're a carpenter or a plumber or um, a metal worker or, or something like that, where you have to learn, learn to do something. It's not just a mindset. It's not just thinking. It's not just ideas. It's not abstract. The idea of a disciple is very concrete biblically. It's doing the things. So let's take Jesus as the example, since he's the ultimate rabbi, <laughs> he's the <laughs> ultimate teacher. So it's seeing and learning how Jesus does something and then not only doing the thing that Jesus does, but doing it the exact way that Jesus does. That is discipleship as far as what the Bible is talking about, not what we in the modern... It's not about somebody standing up in front of a class and, and talking. That's not discipleship. We've made it that, but it's not. This is interesting. So I was, uh, I was taught something along the lines with discipleship. So... Uh, I wanted to share this with you, and I have a follow-up question. So, um, in this in this teaching, I love the way that this goes in hand in hand with what you're saying here. But it's really it comes it's a circle. It's it's a teacher student relationship, right? So the teacher says, "I do, you watch," then I do, you help, and then you do, I help, and then you do i watch so it's it's like i'm 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 showing you what to do and you're watching me do it and then eventually you're going to help me and join me in this path and then you're going to be doing what i was doing before and i'm going to watch you and cheer you on and then 
you're or I'm going to help you assist you and then you're going to do it and step out and start doing it yourself and I'm going to watch you and cheer you on um when it comes time to watch somebody hmm. as a as a teacher um would you find that to be one of the most difficult parts or to or help them not when they're actually doing it, but to kind of bring them from a place of they're kind of like just following along. Is that very difficult to then transition to them and like, hey, you guys, you need to step in and start start doing some of this? For me, no. For me, that that's the most rewarding time is then now you do it. Um, and because of my my interest in and sort of the Jewish background of the Christian faith. And, and um, as a Christian pastor, I am a practitioner of Messianic Judaism. I follow Jesus in a very Jewish way. And that to me is, is the ultimate goal, is that your students surpass you. That, that's the, no teacher could be more happy than if their student surpasses them. And I, what you just said, I've never heard it said any better because what unfortunately we've done in modern Christianity is it's, it's all about what you believe. If I could just get my congregation to believe the right things or to know the right things, we've made it all about the head. We've, we've taken everything away that has to do with the hands. It's not about doing. And it's, it's because I think we have an intense allergy in the modern church to works-based salvation. And so we don't want to be accused that we're trying to earn our way to heaven. And so we don't like to do things. We like to think things. We like to believe things. We like to be. We don't like to do. Is it kind of like that pendulum where it's like you're either, we, we go on this pendulum from, absolutely, you, you know, works, grace. And it was like, you know, if you're too, because of it, we're so afraid of appearing that we believe that works is going to save us. Right. When we know that works isn't going to save us, but just doing the works is not a bad thing. Right. But then we get so afraid of we're doing them that right. we're going to look like we're worried about the work so much more than the... Exactly. And, and that's that's why I love following Jesus in a more Jewish way than in a typically more Christian way. Um, nothing wrong with... Christianity or the church or anything, but for me, following Jesus in a Jewish way means doing those good works which God ordained for us to do beforehand, like it says in the New Testament. There, there's nothing wrong with doing the good works. We have to let our light so shine that men will see our good works, but we don't get the glory, that they will glorify our Father in heaven. So in a Jewish way, you wake up in the morning, you say, what good can I do today? And the Jewish belief is one act of kindness or righteousness or justice in the world done in God's name has a ripple effect across the universe. That's the belief that as I'm adding merit to, to Israel, Israel being, um, those people who are a part of Israel because they were born into Israel and those who are grafted in like us because of, of what Jesus did. Storing up treasures in heaven means every time I do something kind for someone else, that is like a coin in the merit box of, of Israel. And every time the Jewish belief is too, every time I give into temptation, 
that's like taking a coin out of the merit box of Israel. It's like I'm, I'm being a detriment to the people because that's that corporate thing again, that if I can do something good today and it'll be doubly good if I can do it and then teach you how to do it too, then it's like, wow. My, my dad always said, and he probably got this from a professor in seminary, but I've always loved this, where the real fruit of an apple tree is not an apple. The real fruit of an apple tree is another apple tree. The, the point of the apple is simply a delivery system for the seed, you know? So to, to not only be someone who makes a disciple, but to be someone who makes a disciple that makes a disciple, that's what Christianity is supposed to be. It's not supposed to be everyone is first generation. It, it's not supposed to be, I'm a pastor and I'm trying to get all of these people to get with Jesus. It's really that I'm supposed to get everybody to get with Jesus, to then make disciples that get with Jesus. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's it's supposed to be cascading that way. Well, why is it so difficult to, to do that? Why is that such a difficult thing to achieve? Because it takes time and effort, and we're lazy. <laughs> I mean, that's just it. If, if you could say, I'll just ask you the question. If you were the pastor, which is easier? to come up with what you think is a great sermon and deliver it on mass to a, a group of people or to take this person aside and really walk them through their bad marriage or their depression or their addiction or whatever, which is easier, which is less messy, which is, which, which takes less work, you know, it's easier to, well, you know, I mean, from the outside in, it's easier to prepare a message. Right. Um, but then again, you know, I've also delivered messages, so I do understand that pressure that that uh, that you preachers are under every week to to come up with something new and um, there's keeping, a bit, keeping things yeah, interesting. Yeah, so there's definitely a high amount of pressure. There, there's but, a bit of that, but honestly, I because it's still... easy for me to say that you know it's it's um, yeah it's easier to do that than. Than to go out on in and live this life, but you know, yeah, there's definitely a that's a but it is not easy. What I, I understand the point you're you're yeah. saying, like it's definitely not easy to. It it takes preparation, you know, to like deliver a message to come up with a sermon, but that that's so easy compared to yeah getting a call of me and my twelve year old daughter are living in a hotel and is there any way you could help us with one more night of that? That's hard. You know, we, we go to school to learn how to prepare messages. And, and if, if, if you're a pulpit minister, if you're a pastor, a teacher, someone that preaches, if you're not naturally gifted toward that, then then God is purposely working through you to show his glory. Because usually God calls people into ministry that, that at least don't have an aversion to talking with a group of people. Public speaking usually for a pastor isn't very difficult. But getting the call that, you know, uh, my wife is, you know, drinking again or 
um, my husband left me or those things, or God forbid, uh, my child took their own life. What, what do I do now? Mm-hmm. That is where no program, no pamphlet, no speech, no eulogy is as effective as I don't know what to say in this moment. And so I just want to be here for you. I, I don't have any answers. I don't have a magic wand where I can make this pain go away. Um, relationship, relationship, relationship. My dad has been in ministry for 35 years. And what he always tells me is everything rises and falls on relationships. Everything. I see a, uh, I see a parallel in, in what you're talking about. And I'm not sure if you, if you intended it that way, but the, when you talked about converts versus disciples yeah, and Jesus is a personal Lord and Savior yeah. rather than the corporate. And and I see a parallel here because the discipleship is actually the the corporate yes. uh, gathering. So the discipleship is actually living together or or the discipleship living is, together isn't I'm the right with, word. Yeah. No, but you're doing right. life together. I'm with Jesus. You need him too. Please come be be with us. It can't just be spiritually selfish. It can't just be me and Jesus are okay, and that's all I need. No. What about your neighbor? What about your sibling? What about whoever? But where does the where does that desire come from to to like want to be want to isolate? Hmm. I think it's less painful. I think it's less painful. My dad has said, I keep saying my dad says, obviously he's a, he's, he's my main mentor, you know, and, and that's how it should be. Um, dads tell good things to your kids so they can say, you know, my dad says moms, if there's not a dad in the picture, say good things to your kids. But, you know, my dad would have this attitude of, he says to married couples when they're going through premarriage counseling, he says, I want to warn you, marriage is a call to suffering. It is. Because when you're single, you just got to worry about you. Marriage is when you hurt, now I'm hurting. So I not only have to deal with my hurt, but I'm taking on your hurt as well. I'm trying to help you get through. This is a corporate thing. This is me and you together with the Lord. And sometimes, even in marriages, and you guys know this, you have a marriage ministry. But sometimes in marriages, we can isolate and say, this relationship with me and the Lord, this is mine. I don't want someone encroaching upon that. And admittedly, that's how I was in the very beginning of my marriage. You know, the Lord got me through some very difficult things. And it's very easy to be, Lord, it's me and you against the world, and I'm putting this wall up, and no one's getting in, only you. And then when you start to love someone and let them in your life, you're like, oh, but this is my special thing with the Lord. I don't want anybody else, you know, three's a crowd, <laughs> you know. This. In uh, Early on in our marriage and running business, we, we, we very much went down that road of isolation. Hmm. And uh, I think a lot of it came from my, from my training in the military was like, well, if, if nobody else, if, if I want to get it done, 
uh, I can't really depend on anybody else to do right. it for me. I'm going to have to do it. And, and a lot of times, and that turns into like, I can't trust anybody right. to do it. And then it, um, so we've, we're recovering from that. So we're trying, so we've been actively trying to um, move away from that ideology in our head because it's been ingrained in us so long. But there's a, there is also the aspect of when, when I get away from that, and then I tend to, what you said, it's painful sometimes. Yeah. Because then we get, um, we get, we get betrayed or so like, you know, start developing a relationship with somebody and then all of a sudden I don't hear back from them hmm. and, you know, I, or they're not responding to me or they just disappeared and ghosted me. And then, you know, then we start to, um, that uh, I've, I've personally found that to be a difficult place to be where it's like I'm trying to step out right. and put myself out there again. It's like, a you know, the dating game thing they mm-hmm. always go through. And so I'm trying to, I'm kind of curious, how can we communicate, continually communicate to people the importance of staying out there and keeping our heart open and keeping our, and keep building relationships? Um, how can we better communicate the importance of it when they're, when the people are continually getting just, you know, getting hurt? Right. And going through that pain. Yeah. Um, and if they can't really see the benefit outweighing the cost. Right. Uh, I think it has to be a two-way street. I think we, there has to be the, the party that is doing the outreach, the party that is putting themselves out there and trying to establish a relationship. But that other person has to be willing to open up their heart so it's almost like the person that initiates the connect. You know, I, I've seen you in church, and and you know, I, you know, our families should get together. You know, let, let's get to know one another. There's that on the party that initiates. There's that fear of rejection. Well, what if what if they say uh, we don't like you, or, or who knows, or no, we don't want to do that. That's weird. Uh, we don't want to come to your house. Uh, you get you guys could be weirdos, or or, or whatever. The other party has to also know to be open themselves to take that invitation. Because I think all relationships today, at least in our culture, are disposable. All relationships, marriages, friendships. You talk about, talk about ghosting someone. I mean, there, there are even friendships that just end because the other person won't respond, you know? Um, so I think whether it's marriage or friendship, business partnership, whatever, just like in a marriage, if you decide, okay, we're going to do marriage the way that the Bible says, and so barring any catastrophic whatever, uh, divorce is not on the table for us. You know, what my wife and I have always said divorce, we don't even use that word. Divorce is not an option. Whatever happens in this relationship, we're going to work it out. We're going to stick it out. We're going to work it out. And it's that way in churches. You know, people get offended or, or people get, um, I don't agree with that theology and, and so I'm just going to leave rather than, okay, maybe I don't agree with that theology, but can, can I have a relationship with someone with whom I disagree? Is that possible? Is it possible in the modern world to have friends with some, to be friends with someone that we disagree with? 
So I, I think there, I think we got to get rid of the idea that relationships are disposable, that no matter what happens, if we offend one another, if we bother one another, we make it right. We come back together and we, we keep walking. If we don't do that in marriages, friendships, business relationships, church relationships, we're not going to get the benefit of a relationship that is stronger because of scar tissue. You know, scar tissue becomes stronger than the original tissue. You know, it, it's had to make a new bond. And it's the same with human beings. You know, whether it's a parent and a child, whether it's, like I said, even even business partnerships or relationships with uh, within the church. I think it's really cool that you're talking about the the relationship and how it how we how we just need that how we need to stay in relationship with each yeah, other um what can we as a as a as a man who's been in ministry and involved in ministry for for so many years uh, all your life basically yeah um what would you what would be your message to uh younger men who are seeking to better serve the Lord or better get connected uh, with the Lord and to to serve Him and seek Him in a better way? To not be loners. I, I think that's the biggest detriment that men have because just like you were trained in the Marines, well, if it's going to get done, then I'm the one who'll do it, and I can't count on anyone. There's so many loners out there, especially with men, for some reason, God designed women, I think, to have this a little more natural. Um, it still work for women to to have relationship, but um, but I think for whatever reason, maybe it's culture, maybe it's maybe it's in our DNA. I don't know, but for some reason, with men, it's sometimes difficult to to have that um, brotherhood attachment with another man. Um, it is, it's easier when it happens to us. If, if two men are uh, in an elevator and it breaks and they go through that traumatic experience together, they have a bond. Men that have been in the military or seen uh, combat or something like that, there's a brotherhood because something happened to them that bonded them together. It's different to open yourself up vulnerably to another man to say, I want to trust you. I, I want to... I want to be vulnerable with you. I want to, uh, I want to have a, an actual something more than a friendship, more like a brotherhood with you. It seems weird to a man. It shouldn't, but but it does. There, there's something that we have a block up about. No, I got this. I'll handle this, and we just grit our teeth and muscle through whatever we're going through. That's not how God intended it. You know, no man is an island, or we're not supposed to be. Um, I'll just give you one quick example. I'm, I'm a musician, so I'm a big fan of music. There's a wonderful song, old song from the 60s by a group called Simon and Garfunkel. And uh, they have a, a song called I Am a Rock. And the whole song is about how I don't need anyone. I, don't, I have no need of friendship. Friendship causes pain. It's laughter and it's loving I disdain. I am a rock. I'm an island. And the whole song is so defiant about I'm a loner. I will stay a loner. I don't need anyone. And then the song slows down and the last two lines are, and a rock feels no pain and an island never cries. 
and it betrays the rest of the whole song, you don't really want to be a rock. Mm-hmm. You just don't want to experience pain. You, you want to be so hard because a rock doesn't feel pain and an island doesn't cry. When you get vulnerable with another man or a group of men, there's a, there's a danger of you getting hurt. There's a danger of somebody laughing at you if you, if you tear up or mm-hmm. become emotional or sympathetic or whatever. But we need that. We as men, if we'll be honest with ourselves and each other, we need that brotherhood. We need the group of guys to go out after Lot. He's not getting kidnapped and being left there. We need that brotherhood. We need that Abraham attitude of, Lord, what if there was just five righteous people in that town? Are you still going to destroy it? Hmm. We need to look out for other people. Um, Yeah, when you trust someone or delegate to someone, they, they might get it wrong. And you got to really resist the urge to say, you see, that's why I do everything. Because people fail me. So it's hard. I just love that you you went that direction, that that is one of the most important things to teach uh, younger men. Um, I'm not saying it's only younger men, but it's that's one of the most important things to teach men as they're, they're seeking to follow the Lord better is to not be isolated, because that's where I found myself um, in the past. And that that overcoming that was the definitely the biggest impact on my spiritual growth. Hmm. So thank you for sharing that. If you get it when you're young, if you can impart that to a younger man, they have to unlearn a lot less. Hmm. Some of us get old and grizzled and stuck in our ways, and we have to unlearn. But if you can catch a, a young man when he's young, then he doesn't have to unlearn all that stuff. Well, that was, I think that's a perfect point to leave these men with. Um, and I want to thank you and honor you, Pastor Matt. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you. And uh, thank you guys for listening. Um, I'm really excited for the release of this first episode. So uh, if you listen this long, please take a minute, like, subscribe, share, uh, leave me a star rating wherever you're listening or watching. Um, send a comment. This is awesome. But uh, thank you, Pastor Matt. Thank this you. has been a pleasure. I'm sure this is the first of many interviews with you. Um, so I'm really excited to explore some of these and other topics as well. Thank you. Thank you, Pastor Matt.